What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to FedWatch. Excited to jam on Bitcoin with a new guest to the show. Uh, Ansel has brought on Logscale, who is a prolific content creator, specifically in the Twitter spaces domain. So Log, welcome to the show. Thanks, glad to be here. I guess really quick, uh, Ansel, uh, I want to pass it over to you. You put together the agenda and uh, maybe we can get into a little bit of introductions. Yeah, Log, great to meet you, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, could you give our audience a five minutes or two minute introduction to like how you're uh, how you're involved with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin spot? Sure. Yeah, I don't know that there's more than two minutes to say, <laughs> to say. So when Spaces became a thing, Twitter Spaces, that is, I think it was. Well, I found it about in May of last year, which I think was pretty early, and I wasn't quite a Bitcoin maximalist yet. Like I kind of got the idea that it was important macroeconomic, uh, macroeconomic asset. I, I was heavily invested in it. The market had just crashed and spaces had just started. I thought, well, let me let me jump in here and learn more about Bitcoin. And uh, so I started talking to people who knew a lot more than I did. And since kind of Bitcoin spaces was a new thing, they were they would last like eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, you know, and every day. Uh, even though the market was down, everybody wanted to talk. It was probably the first time it was easy for like Bitcoiners to talk to a lot of other Bitcoiners. So apart from Clubhouse, but anyway, so it was like Spaces was really hot, and the Spaces would end because like, oh, you know, I got to go to dinner. Spouse is calling me, whatever, and I'm like, you know, I'm single. I'll just like, I'll just host these. So like, okay, logs of the host. So <laughs> that's how I became a Spaces host, and it just like. It just didn't stop, you know, like month after month, uh, these things would go on forever. More and more people would join. My spaces got bigger. My followers, you know, increased. And like this whole thing just kind of happened organically. And then, um, as you may know, like in August, I started kind of paying attention to what was going on with the U.S. government Bitcoin and Gary Gensler and the infrastructure bill. I started like putting together a theory and uh, tweeting about that. And that got me um, a lot of attention and, and a lot of followers. And so th that kind of became a thing uh, and, and kind of an area of interest of mine where I kind of believed I was following things a little more closely than others. And, um, and so, uh, you know, one thing just led to another. And then, uh, you know, like November rolled around and, uh, Twitter started sponsoring my spaces, you know, just one thing after another. So then I'm like, well, why don't I like, why don't I turn this into a channel and take the log scale out of the main account, make a new personal account for myself and make this a platform where other people who I thought been like contributing a lot to my spaces could run their own shows. And so that kind of brings us up to today, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. The first time I ran across your tweets was when we agreed on Gensler and possibly like some sort of friendly outcome from U.S. regulators. But before we get there, uh, the main topic I wanted to bring you on to talk about is the tweet thread that you put out a few weeks ago, and it was on institutional investment or 401k type people putting Bitcoin in their 401k and uh, how many trillions of dollars could be flooding into Bitcoin this year. So can you... Um, maybe step us through, I don't know how you want to do this. Should we go through each tweet or do you, can you summarize that? I can tweet summarize. Yep. Um, I, I've actually, um, as you know, this isn't released yet, but I've been working on 
a Bitcoinization calculator and kind of a video to, to walk people through the, the thought process. Uh, so this is a little teaser uh, about that. So I just kind of started like kind of running the numbers on how much money is out there and trillions of dollars in global wealth and like of these different buckets of wealth, how much could flow into Bitcoin and then what impact would that have on the price of Bitcoin? And so I started, you know, first digging for some numbers. I also came across some information on like surveys of financial advisors and what they were starting to recommend. And I thought like, you know what, you could kind of put these numbers together and multiply them and could create a calculator so people could adjust the assumptions and see what, what would you know come of it. So the best source for global wealth breakdowns is a report that comes out every year from Credit Suisse. It's called the something or other data book. It's like a hundred and some pages. And so I um, use that as my base. Uh, they say there's $418 trillion in global wealth, uh, but about $255 trillion of that is in financial assets. The rest would be like real estate and machinery and equipment and such. Another source says of the $255 trillion in financial assets, about $110 trillion are institutionally managed. Now, compare that to corporate treasuries, which Bitcoiners keep talking about because of Michael Saylor and Tesla. And corporate treasuries are only 4%, uh, sorry, they're only $4 trillion, which against global wealth is less than 1%, against global financial assets is like 2%. And so on a pie chart, you can like hardly even see it. And so every time like Bitcoiners go into this, like, well, corporate treasuries and like, you know what? That's nothing. You're missing the big picture. The, the biggest bucket of, of you know, wealth is private wealth, which is approaching $100 trillion, like household wealth. And of course, the wealthy have the biggest chunk of that. Then you've got pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, foreign exchange assets. You put that together and that's like 95% of it. And like corporate treasuries fits in the other 5%. So this is, you know, we're way beyond corporate treasuries. It's just people aren't thinking that big yet. So, so then there's the survey of financial advisors that's run every year. And uh, that's done by the, um, the Journal of uh, whatever their professional publication is. It's their professional association and publication, Journal of Financial Planning. And they've been asking about cryptocurrencies since 2018. Uh, it comes out every March, so we're about to get the March 2022, which would be the fifth year they've asked these questions. And if you like look at the data, you can see that actually when in 2018, clients of financial advisors were asking about allocating to cryptocurrencies, and uh, we hope that's mostly Bitcoin, but the advisors weren't like, weren't interested. Even that was like after the 2017 bull run. And so like the number of advisors interested in recommending cryptocurrencies like was between zero and 1% in 2018, 2019, 2020. And then that totally changed in 2021 uh, when once again, like half their clients are asking about allocations. And this time 14% of advisors were recommending allocation and uh, 26% said they expected to be doing so within a year. 28% said they've got a viable place in the portfolio. And 48% of financial advisors were buying cryptocurrencies for themselves. And so you can see that they, they've started taking this seriously. And I think, you know, it's because you've got guys on, you know, Wall Street 
with big names like, you know, Paul Tudor Jones and Bill Miller and Stan Drucken Miller and, and folks like that saying, hey, I'm putting 3% or I'm putting 5% or you know, Bill Miller recently, I got half my net worth in Bitcoin. So, um, you know, it's sort of been given this like stamp of this imprimatur, like, hey, this is now a legit thing. And so you can see it's like gone from being this kind of weird thing to like, hey, this is something we should be doing. Meanwhile, like the whole global financial system is falling apart. And like this saying is the 60-40 portfolio is dead. All right, well, what's going to like, what's going to go into the new portfolio if the 60-40 portfolio is dead? You know, could that include 3% to Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, right. That's what they're talking about. So move on to Rick Edelman, who is like a big name in, in the industry. He started the largest, you know, financial planning firm in, in the US and was named like the number one financial planner in three different years by Barron's. And so he's made a number of predictions he did for 2021 and now he has for 2022 regarding cryptocurrencies or digital assets. And in 2021, like 19 of his 21 predictions came true. And one of those, by the way, was like there's reputational risk for financial advisors and financial managers in not recommending that clients put a little money into digital assets. Uh, whereas before the reputational risk was, well, if I do, right, then uh, it, it could be a bad thing and the clients won't like me. But now it's like, well, so many advisors are doing it, I have to, or my performance isn't going to keep up with theirs. And so there's just been this inversion where now like the safe thing for them to do and their clients are demanding it, right? So that if they don't give them the option, the clients are just going to go elsewhere. Or uh, so, you, so, you know, you've got this, this kind of inversion going on. So among like Rick Edelman's predictions for 2022, he says financial advisors that are you know, recommending allocations, digital assets are recommending three to 5%. So we could say like 3% for Bitcoin and the rest maybe for other junk. You know? And then he says it's regarding Bitcoin specifically, a third of Americans will own it by the end of 2022 and 500 million American, oh, sorry, 500 million globally will own Bitcoin. So I'm like, okay, well, let's say that his predictions are as accurate this year as they were last year. What would that mean? So that led to building this kind of Bitcoinization calculator where it broke down global wealth into like seven different buckets by like net worth level and regionally. And you can kind of go in and say, okay, well, what if X percent of this bucket allocated Y percent this money to Bitcoin? How much money would that be? And so I played around with the defaults. Uh, I actually just kind of set them to what I thought, you know, might make sense. And then I compared them against Edelman's predictions. And, that, and actually, they were almost spot on. The calculator was saying like 521 million globally with the defaults I set and 33.3% uh, .3 of Americans, just like right on with Rick Edelman's prediction uh, for owning Bitcoin. And 2.9% of financial assets versus the 3% uh, plus he predicted. Um, so how much money is that? And uh, for example, pull it up here. That is $4.38 trillion total. And, you know, when, when money flows, this is a big question, when money flows into Bitcoin, it has a bigger than a you know, one-to-one -one effect on the market cap of Bitcoin. 
and how big this multiplier is is a huge subject debate and something I need to like dig deeper into. But you know, it's because there's right obviously there's an inflexible supply and unwilling sellers, and so Bank of America put out this report. A lot of people were talking about last spring, and they said ninety three million dollars in inflows to Bitcoin would move the market by one percent, and at that time, the Bitcoin market cap is about $1 trillion. And if you do the math, that works out to like 107x multiplier money going in to market cap going up, which seems nuts and certainly I don't think can be sustainable. I know other people have used numbers like 2.5 and 3x. Aaron S., Ludi Magist, uh, he, he came up with perhaps 7.5x for institutions. So there's this huge range of multipliers that you can use. But if you use 2.5x, that works out to 11 trillion increase in market cap. What does that work out to a Bitcoin price? Probably about $650,000. And obviously, if you use Bank of America's 100x multiplier, you're basically at hyper-Bitcoinization. I don't know that this number, this multiplier number, can ever be like really figured out or what the right method is to, to do so. I think Willie Wu has a metric that I think is in the 2.5 to 3 range, if I understand the metric correctly. The whole thing is going to hinge on, on, on what is this metric. But it seems to me that like as number go up and then more people allocate and then we'll go up and then more people allocate, it seems to me like that multiplier might actually increase. And like obviously it can't stay at like 100x or 10x infinity because I mean, <laughs> you'd end up with more money in Bitcoin than there is global wealth. But like, to me, that seems like, well, maybe that's just the inflection point when you like get to hyper Bitcoinization. So anyway, I thought that was going to be a short overview and <laughs> that wasn't short. Now, that was great. Um, I, I just had something to add about the multiplier effect. Yeah, it will definitely be different during different times of the market. So right as we're about to have a parabolic blow off top. Yeah, it probably has 100x multiplier, but at, at the bottom, you know, it, it won't even move the market. So what is the average? I, I'd say two or three X is probably about the average. Yeah. And even that, right, leads to some really big numbers. Christian, did you have the next one? Yeah, no. Well, I, I really love like the way that you're thinking about this. And I, funny enough, I actually gave a speech about this at Bitcoin Day Sacramento, not specifically, you know, the subject, but just trying to give people a bigger idea of like what Bitcoin could be. You know, I was doing some really rudimentary math, but, you know, kind of taking like global store of value estimates and dividing that by 21 million and things like that, just to try to give people an idea of like, what are we talking about in terms of Bitcoin absorbing uh, wealth, store of value, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the right framing that people need to start thinking in versus like, when's Bitcoin going to hit 100K? When's Bitcoin going to reach gold? Like it's not limited to, you know, just gold. It's not limited to, uh, you know, six figures in dollar amount. Like Bitcoin is, is effectively evolution in how we store value. Um, so it, it kind of has a lot more totalitarity in my mind, and it's also pretty binary. So it either, you know, absorbs all of this or it, it doesn't and it's irrelevant. So I guess I'm kind of curious what you think of that. Yeah, um, I, I totally agree um, with all of that. And when things, when big events happen in human history, 
they're usually like much bigger than people imagine. And especially I think in the digital age, things can happen in a much faster um, and, and, and bigger way. And so I guess part of my argument is that, uh, and I don't want to be like accused of being a moon boy, so I'm not putting any dates on these predictions, but like, I think that people aren't appreciating how big like the upper limit of the possibilities are about how this could unfold. And that like, there's an escape velocity that, that Bitcoin reaches where it just, it just can't be stopped. And, um, and actually if it unfolds too fast, that's actually not, not really a good thing for Bitcoin and certainly not for society. Um, and so I'm not championing that either. I'm just saying like, this is in the cards. If you look at the money that people are already saying they're like moving into Bitcoin. I think one thing that I forgot in my overview was, you know, I think a good estimate for financial advisors um, right now, and we'll find out what the answer is in the survey next month, but um, you know, about a third, which is in line with Rick uh, Edelman's prediction of a third of, of Americans. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. You have to step back and look at the big picture of, of global wealth because Bitcoin's a superior store of value to anything ever. And it's um, it's singular, and you've got to, you know, step back. And and by the way, just a word about the four year cycle. Like I'm I'm on the camp where I think the four year cycle is dead, and I don't mean like 100% dead because obviously the halvings and the supply issuance is going to have some degree of impact, but it's less and less each time, right? Because in the amount of Bitcoin that's created is by definition half of what it was before relative to like the total supply. And as people start moving like money into Bitcoin in the you know billions and trillions, the impact of that having is becomes inconsequential and it's it's overwhelmed and it's swamped. And so I think some of the OG Bitcoiners, like you know, they're almost trapped into believing that there's this four-year cycle and now we're in this three-year bear market because like that's what they're used to and that's what Bitcoin is for them. But I think that it breaks out of that. And, um, and, and, you know, the question is when, but, you know, the, the kind of inflows we're talking about are more than enough to break Bitcoin out of this four-year cycle. I have a question uh, about the total wealth um, at coming into Bitcoin, uh, that how much of it is going to be taken up by derivatives and not buying spot, you know, like yeah. if we had a spot ETF, that would be a different story. Uh, we do have GBTC that does buy or is backed by Bitcoin, but you know they could just be getting into the futures ETF or or other options type products uh, that track Bitcoin's price and not just put it straight into the coin. How much do you think that will affect like the total amount coming into Bitcoin? Unfortunately, I think that it's most of these inflows are not going to come into spot. Um, it depends on how successful like Nidig and uh, some of the others like Eaglebrook and Swan are in like um, helping institutions or institutionally managed money. I guess we should probably like change the, the lingo because the big money is not institutions buying for themselves. It's institutions buying for their clients or advisors buying for their clients. And what vehicle are they going to recommend? Um, and so hopefully you've got, you know, these firms like Nidig making inroads so that the they're, they're investing in a vehicle that goes into buying spot Bitcoin, but you know a lot of it won't be, and um, and and even even that money that goes into uh, right buying spot Bitcoin, they're going to be held by centralized custodians. And so, 
uh, this gets into the, like the whole kind of next question of this, and that's the game theory of it all. But um, you know, not your keys, not your coin. And ninety nine percent of the, this like money coming in is not going to be self custodied, uh, and we don't know what percentage will be in the actual spot, but it could be you know less than half. And so, what does that mean? Well, unfortunately, I think that it means that uh, the U.S. government one day could decide that Bitcoinization might be happening, and uh, we're going to nationalize. Grayscale and MicroStrategy and Coinbase and like all the big honeypots of Bitcoin. And when I say nationalize, I don't mean they just steal it. I mean, like they'd probably pay you what Bitcoin was worth the day before and maybe plus 10%. But, you know, the next day it would be worth 25x in cold storage, you know, and you'd miss out on all that upside if you were holding it through a custodian. But that's just another reason why the United States is, you know, like without putting any, uh, you know, positive or negative judgment on it, just like the reality of the game theory, why the United States might be interested in this asset. It's going to be like, gosh, all these honeypots are within our borders. 100% uh, completely agree on, you know, the, I, the, the way I see it is like, there's kind of like the fiat world and like the fiat mentality. And then there's like this new virgining Bitcoin world. So it would make sense that like the first time that all of these institutions dip their toes into Bitcoin, that they do it like the the old fiat way of doing things, the traditional finance way of doing things with a trusted third party and all of these kind of things that uh, are used today. Uh, and I honestly think that what it's going to take is a massive reckoning uh, to kind of happen in that area, like a massive reckoning uh, of uh, proportions that maybe, you know, we have never seen in modern finance. Um, but I think that that's what it's going to take in order to really, you know, shake anyone out of thinking that they're going to be able to sell like Bitcoin in the middle, you know, because there's a Bitcoin native way of doing things. And there's, then there's kind of like this spectrum of like, centralization and you know people think that they can you know get the best of bitcoin and still like you know be compliant or work with a third party or something all of these kind of misconceptions uh, and i think a lot of institutions a lot of investors you know they're going to get burnt because of that mentality yeah it's it's hard to predict how this plays out but there's going to certainly be some very dramatic events involved along the way we'll have, you know, spaces with tens of thousands of people in them. Like, what the fuck? United States just nationalized Grayscale. I mean, you can go way down the rabbit hole and you can say, like, Michael Saylor is just a front for the U.S. government. Like, that's part of the future U.S. Treasury. And he was recruited to do this. I, I don't know that you know, that isn't necessary to, like, believe any of this is going to happen. But it's possible. Yeah. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. 
So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. MicroStrategy is very close to, uh, is it the CIA uh, in Virginia? They're also close to MIT. Uh, And I don't know if you want to get into it, but that kind of gets into other topic on the U.S. government and, and Bitcoin. There's been a real connection between U.S. government and MIT and also Princeton and like a revolving door of personnel. And they've been like studying this seriously since 2014. Actually, you can probably go back to like 2011 when Gavin Andreessen like went and met with the CIA. Yeah, um, I just I wanted to bring this back to Gensler because he, you know, we're we're kind of waiting on this Bitcoin ETF, the spot ETF. We're waiting on um, maybe some clarification from the SEC on regulation. But re- if a third of Americans are going to own Bitcoin by the end of the year, I, I don't see them having the ability to make this any sort of draconian regulation. I mean, not even a third of people own stocks, right? So, I mean, it's, it's going to be one of the most widely owned assets in the country. And how can you have a draconian regulation on that? What, what are your thoughts on Gensler you know, and uh, coming regulation? I'm glad you asked. We didn't talk about Gensler enough. So, like, my eyes were opened about Gensler in, like, the first one minute of the first major comments he made about cryptocurrencies, which was at the, at the Aspen Institute Forum on August 3rd. And this guy like spoke like glowingly about Satoshi. Like he loves Satoshi. He loves Bitcoin. He like researched it and studied it at MIT. And he was chosen to be the top regulator. Like we were supposed to have this massive battle between government and Bitcoin. And instead, what does the US do? Puts a virtual Bitcoiner in charge of regulation and well, like, I don't think like a lot of Bitcoiners have fully absorbed the implications of that. And, um, and one of the things that I'm working on is I've like, taking hours of Gary Gensler video and editing down into little snippets so that people can see by just watching a short video, watch him talk about Satoshi, about Bitcoin and about like altcoins. And you can very clearly get a sense of his views on these things if you condense them. And the other thing that's interesting about Gensler is that he's guarded in his prepared comments, but in the Q&A, he like, he opens up and he lets more on and he's like, he wouldn't be a good poker player because he can totally read his emotions, his facial expressions. And that's key to like understanding how he like really feels about this asset. And he is like, in love with Bitcoin. And so you hire a guy like that either to try to shut down Bitcoin or to like create a safe space for Bitcoin to use a a term. And I think it's latter. This guy was hired to uh, understand and protect Bitcoin while he's meanwhile going after like the rest of crypto. If everyone had like 
seen all the Gary Gensler videos and had any ability to read people, they'd like they'd see what I'm seeing. And so I'm trying to like make that easily more easily accessible by editing them down. Yeah, and I think that it just makes sense for the US to adopt Bitcoin or at least legalize it because uh, it, everyone is, you know, Bitcoiners and gold bugs and stuff for the longest time have said, oh, you know, the dollar is going to lose its hegemony and all this stuff. Well, there's an easy way to stop that from happening. It's just buy Bitcoin and back the dollar eventually with Bitcoin. Um, and I don't think that part of the game theory uh, escapes these people either. So um, that's why I'm I'm really thinking that the U.S. is not going to be a laggard here. The U.S. is going to be one of the first countries to take a lead. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And there's just too much evidence for it, right? If the, if the U.S. were prepared to fight Bitcoin, you would know it. It would be like freaking obvious. We'd be in the trenches right now. And instead, they're like rubber stamping all of these institutional investments into Bitcoin. And yeah, let's talk about the spot ETF. Why hasn't Gensler approved one? I think the most likely explanation is that it's strategic and that I think the most likely uh, strategic reason is he does not want to have to approve an ETF for Ethereum and other coins. And so I think he wants to establish the, um, you know, the policy and the precedent first before approving the, the Bitcoin ETF. So I think that's what the holdup is. But maybe it's a good thing because without the ETF, it's going to give like, you know, Nidig and these other uh, companies more room to like approach advisors and managers with products and vehicles that end up being, um, you know, spot ETF uh, for sure. And I guess we're talking about a Bitcoin spot ETF, but, uh, you know, you, you never know exactly what shape that's going to take. Yeah, I was actually on a Twitter spaces this morning with Cafe Bitcoin, and we were talking about, um, you know, the unlikely turn of events that have kind of happened around the Bitcoin spot ETF in the US. Spot ETFs in other countries are being approved. I think uh, recently one in South Korea just got announced. I personally, I think it may have been from listening to you, Log, but I, I have really kind of seen the logic in stiff arming a lot of this for the very purpose of preventing altcoins from getting into this. Because the reality is, is that from a market development and a financialization perspective, Bitcoin is so much further ahead. And by creating all of these obstacles that you know, Bitcoin really is the only one that has the ability to conquer quickly. I think that it effectively kind of builds this moat for Bitcoin. So I kind of, you know, your theory, it, it makes sense to me. You know, at the same time, it's hard to trust, you know, someone who uh, is working inside these organizations. Uh, it's also interesting to see, you know, the focus on the yield products and things like that, when it just seems to me like there's so many low hanging fruit around like, illegal securities from token issue, issuance and stuff like that. Like, why hasn't the SEC gone after 2017 folks for that? Uh, just because it seems like it's... Maybe they're waiting, you know, so blatant. clarification on the Ripple um, lawsuit, I don't, or case, I don't know. Uh, but that would be my guess. I also think that they didn't want to take action when the market was high. And now that the market is low, I think that we're supposed to see an executive order from the White House very soon about cryptocurrencies, which I think will clarify a lot of this. 
Bitcoin will take a dive because the market at large won't understand that Bitcoin is largely being exempted uh, from whatever onus restrictions are coming. And you have to have really paid attention to what Gary said to um, understand that it's it's not. But I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to paint this with too positive a brush because you can bet that the government will do everything that it can to de-anonymize or de-pseudonymize, if that's a word, Bitcoin. Um, and that's a battle that, that you know, has to be fought, uh, uh, the whole the KYC front, all of this. And so uh, I guess what I'm saying is I think the U.S. government is accepting and prepared to potentially embrace Bitcoin, the asset, but uh, Bitcoin, you know, this ability to privately uh, you know, have total self-sovereignty, they're going to try to break that apart. And that's a battle that's going to have to be fought. Yeah, I think even if Gensler is Bitcoin friendly, uh, there's a lot of other uh, stakeholders there, you know, white, the White House, Janet Yellen at Treasury, the CFTC, you know, there's a lot of different players that might have something to say about it. And uh, yeah, like you said, the president's supposed to have an executive order coming out soon. One of the uh, things that I yeah. noticed um, in August was that <laughs> Elizabeth Warren, the next day after Garrett Gensler's remarks on August 4th, kind of did a 180 on her remarks about crypto. And she said, you know, investors need confidence they're going to invest in this. So we need like some rules in place. <laughs> I'm like, that's, and that's a pretty big change from her previous tone. And you also had a number of Democratic senators join Republican senators to try to fix the infrastructure bill. Actually, every attempt was in the Senate and the House was bipartisan with equal number of people from both parties. Janet Yellen ended up like lobbying for one of the, the bills to try to fix the infrastructure bill. It wasn't the better one, but anyway. And, and but the Biden administration endorsed, as you remember, the proof of work amendment that like would have protected proof of work coins at the expense of proof of stake coins. And this is the Biden administration, like they ran on environmentalism. So everybody thinks proof of work is bad for the environment, even though it isn't. But like why on earth would Biden administration endorse that proof of work over proof of stake amendment? And so if you look at it, my theory is that you go probably go back to Andreessen and the CIA, certainly go back to 2014 when the Obama White House studied Bitcoin very seriously, um, I think they understood that the United States would basically be forced to embrace Bitcoin someday down the road, potentially. And that's why they're, you know, that's why they're protecting it in a sense, uh, at least as a, as, a, as a financial asset. And that's why I think that you saw, like from the highest, somebody not Joe Biden, but like somebody high up in the administration. And I think basically behind the scenes, Genzer is like the czar over all of this. I think he's been given authority over the other agencies. They hired him because he's the guy that gets this. And so I think he's pulling all the strings. And I think that that's why you're kind of seeing, even from the Biden administration, who like hired Gensler in the first place, you know, this sort of friendliness toward toward Bitcoin asset. Oh, and like one comment, because like a lot of Bitcoiners will say like, no, these people are never going to brace Bitcoin. They're the enemy. They're benefiting from the Cantillon effect and blah, blah, blah. And like to that, I say, 
you know, Bitcoin game theory applies to governments as well as institutions, and it applies to, I'm sorry, as well as individuals, and it applies to the individuals in government. It applies to the politicians and the regulators and their donors and their, their families and their kids and their grandkids who are like buying Bitcoin. And so whatever somebody is benefiting from the Cantillon effect or being close to like levers of government, by getting into Bitcoin now, they can actually benefit even more than that if they're like looking to multiply their wealth. And so like that's how Bitcoin turns enemies into friends. And you kind of have to drop your old ways of thinking and like kind of reassess everything from the Bitcoin game theory because it has that kind of power over, over people and, and, and entire governments. I 100% agree. Uh, I've tweeted multiple times that within Bitcoin and within hyper Bitcoinization, you really have to expect the unexpected and you have to think through the game theory, like you said, all the way down to the individual level at any given institution. So a lot of crazy things I, you know, I really expect to unfold. Uh, I want to make a shout out to everyone watching this on YouTube, uh, as well as on Twitter to smash that like button, go over to YouTube, watch it there. If you are tuning in on, uh, on Twitter and, uh, you know, really excellent, excellent information here. Log, you know, he brings incredible information and hosts a lot of great spaces on Twitter. But, you know, this theory, this information, this perspective, it's really interesting. And again, I feel like it aligns to some degree with uh, Ansel's perspective uh, and way that he is viewing uh, what is unfolding as well. So everyone listening, follow Log, make sure to smash the like button. And uh, like I said, you know, really, really interesting conversation, Log. Thanks. And like, while you're showing YouTube, we have a new YouTube channel. It's the Bitcoin Spot. There's a bunch of stuff there already, including the Peter versus Spencer shift debate. The stuff that I'm working on, there's three main projects I'm working on that I'm like putting hundreds of hours into. Those will all be released as YouTube videos. And so, yeah, follow uh, Bitcoin Spot on YouTube and you'll be the first to know when those get released. So, I mean, I guess just kind of jumping back into talking about Gary Gensler, and I know that you uh, you do have a hard stop kind of emerging, you know, what would be like your final kind of, I guess, advice to Bitcoiners, you know, as what you kind of expect to unfold kind of happen, you know, as well as, we, you know, just we, we move forward with governments and the U.S. in particular getting more involved with Bitcoin? Yeah, real simple. Get your Bitcoin off of exchanges, because even in like the U.S.'s friendly toward Bitcoin scenario, they will want that Bitcoin and they will feel justified compensating you what it was worth, like I said, the day before and maybe a little premium. And let's say Bitcoin's worth 500000 on that day and they pay you five fifty per Bitcoin. The next day, it'll be worth $25 million in cold storage. I mean, that's, that's, that's hyper-Bitcoinization, like right there, like the day they do that. So you won't, you won't enjoy and you won't have any Bitcoin and you won't be able to buy any Bitcoin. Yeah, if we're shilling links, bitcoinspot.net, <laughs> you can go find like where to get a hardware wallet uh, under the resources section, like get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. Because uh, even the best case scenario, that's probably going to be have an unhappy ending. And yes, I have a hard stop, but this has been really great. 
you know, um, I wish we had more time and uh, maybe we can get deeper into some of this uh, on another occasion. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Um, you, you are probably one of only two or three Bitcoiners that I see to eye to eye, to eye on this uh, government stuff. Uh, I agree that Bitcoiners, they uh, don't appreciate the game theory or the incentives when it comes to the SEC and, and uh, just government players in this great game of Bitcoin. So uh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. See you later. Thanks a lot, Log. And uh, Ansel, I guess just to like close the loop on the conversation, uh, what would yeah. be kind of like your commentary on, you know, this thesis and your theory in general? I think that the amount of money that's coming in, the 20, well, what does he say in his tweet thread, which I did throw into the chat for you guys, and I will put it in the show notes for everybody. Um, but the the thread said 11 trillion. And I think today here on the show, he said about 11 trillion, didn't he, with the multiplier effect? That's just a, I think, a little bit too bullish for 2022. I, I can see that by 2024, but uh, 2022, I think we are going to see a lot of this happening, but I have friends and family that have lots of money in the stock market and their decisions go slow. So yes, maybe they're going to start moving this year, but it's going to take many years for that 5% of all investable wealth to travel over to Bitcoin. But I, I think it's a great uh, valuation metric and something very important to watch. I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on his new calculator. Awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, again, I, I think some, like the idea of a Bitcoinization calculator is really, really interesting. When I think of hyper Bitcoinization, I was quoting quadrillions. So um, I'd really try to like blow the, the top off when, uh, when we're thinking about how big the Bitcoin market could be. You know, I don't think people think about exponential growth, totality of store of value um, and, you know, what that looks like. Again, I'm hyper bullish. You know, I think 2030 hyper Bitcoinization, but, you know, I might be way too bullish. So we'll see how governments fight. Uh, we'll see if Gary Gensler is really on our team. Uh, we'll see if altcoins get stiff armed by regulators. Um, we'll see again, like I, I think anything is on the table still. So, you know, a lot of what Log was talking about was very, very interesting. Uh, a lot of it was very, very speculative. So, you know, it's not like we don't speculate here on FedWatch, but uh, definitely something to think about as well. Yeah, I, I, wish, I wish we would have had a chance to ask him about real estate because I think that, you know, second homes, I mean, there's, there's a big portion of the real estate market that is going to be peeled off into Bitcoin. And the other question we need to get him back on to ask him is that, uh, what is the next step? Like, what does he think the very next thing coming? Like, what are the road signs along the way uh, that we can look for to see that this investable wealth is moving into Bitcoin? I guess it would be, he might say a Bitcoin ETF, but yeah, let's get him back on. We'll try maybe in a month or so and uh, ask him some of those other questions. Well, I mean, again, there's a lot of Bitcoin ETF alternatives and it's becoming easier and easier to hold Bitcoin through uh, different custodians. So, you know, it's very interesting. It's almost like the fact that the ETF is dragging, it's, it's allowing the Bitcoin holdings to kind of be decentralized. What you're paying attention to as far as how many basis points, what effect do you think that's going to have and if that's going to change their tone given anything happening in Russia, or if 
the market just buckles far worse than they're anticipating? Does that change sort of their forecast for the rest of this year? Yeah, well, uh, some of those outrageous forecasts, like seven, eight, nine rate hikes, those are already coming down. Like the market is already pricing in fewer. And so who knows where it will be by April. It might be just two rate hikes. I think that the yield curves, you know, if the yield curves mean anything, they're getting flatter and flatter. The euro dollar futures has inverted. And so, and a pretty nasty inversion as well. So it is signaling coming up in the near future, there is going to be a liquidity issue. When that is, of course, that's nobody, nobody can predict that, but uh, it is the yield curves are signaling that there is a recession out there on the horizon. And so whether that comes in the middle of the year, which I think it probably will, something around the middle of the year into the end of the year, they won't be able to raise rates in that climate. So I'm thinking one, maybe two rate hikes, and then they'll have to reverse course. We'll see. Maybe even March, they'll have to backtrack and say, we'll put off. Maybe we'll wait to raise rates. uh, And then the next month or two, they say, well, we can't raise rates now. So, you know, they might just put it off without QE and then maybe even restart QE by the end of the year. But it is going to quickly go the other direction, in my opinion. I think that's not even controversial to say that the economy has rolled over. And it's going to go quickly in the other direction. What that has to do with, you know, or how that affects CPI, that remains to be seen because oil might spike here because of the Ukraine situation. And that, you know, CPI is really closely correlated with, with oil price. So if oil spikes, that doesn't mean there's money, more money printing going on. It just means that the supply chains are worse and prices are going up. And that is a big recessionary signal too, because as more people, you know, that takes more discretionary income for the necessities like energy. And that really hurts the economy. So yeah, those are my thoughts on the rest of the year. I love that. I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, I went down the rabbit hole recently of really looking up uh, Powell's resume. And when I was walking it through with a couple of friends and I had to put a couple of emphasis points on the man has no financial history. His entire resume, as far as like understanding of financial markets came because his old boss at a law firm was working at the treasury and asked him to come over there. So that is the extent of his experience before becoming a government official, as far as being involved in financial markets goes. Do you think he has the stomach to deal with the outcomes of rate hikes? We see the writings on the wall that a recession's on the way with the yield curve. The rate hikes typically do lead to bear markets. We saw it happen in 2018, and he did not handle that properly back then. Do you think he has the stomach to really push us through this, or do you think he will have to be flip-flopping as much as possible in order to save face here? Well, I mean, my, my understanding is that he doesn't really do much. So what, to predict what he's going to do, you have to predict what the market is going to do, and then they're going to stay one step ahead of that to make it look like they're actually in control and they're, they're convincing the market that they're, they're going to be able to save any sort of crash. And so I, I, don't, I don't think it's a question of does he have the stomach. I think the market is going to force him to reverse, and that's all there is to it. Fair enough. I mean, he, uh, he seems to do whatever he thinks is best, but unfortunately, I don't think he actually knows what is best. Talk to me a little bit about what, if anything, a 
an invasion of Ukraine would have on the Fed's stance for rate hikes? Do you think that it's going to impact it? Do you think, but I will just leave it at that. I think that they will, they will get a lot more dovish. They're going to lay off on their, a lot of their hawkish talk. And like I said, they might push off rate hikes and they, they'll say something like due to escalation in the international geopolitical situation, shocks to the energy markets, uh, we are going to put off rate hikes until the April meeting and we'll rediscuss. And then maybe the next time they'll say, we'll put it off until June and then discuss it. So we'll see. I mean, they're not pegged down to anything. Uh, they just want to stay one step ahead of the market and Really, what they wanted to do is they wanted to have raised rates enough to cut them again, right? So they wanted to get to 1% in 2022, and then by 2023, if there's an, another recession, they wanted to be able to cut rates. But I don't think they're going to get that far, and they're going to have to get more dovish, at least in their talking points. They're going to have to get more dovish. Uh, I believe Jerome Powell's speechwriter is one of our viewers, and he he wrote down exactly your verbiage there. So thank you for sharing that for them to use. I I don't know if I want, I want to make sure I've, I've phrased this properly for you, but I I personally don't know if a war necessarily is going to change what they're already planning. Um, you're going to see an influx of money go in. You're going to see all of these different defense companies start to really ramp up. I mean, they're they're feeding money into CNBC, CNN, and Fox, trying to instigate some sort of a war battle for their bottom line, in essence, in an attempt to hedge against a declining market or a bear market or a recession, mm -hmm. whatever we want to call it. If at the same time, the market is declining, the Fed does not make a change in their stance as far as raising rates, but we are entering a war or seeing a war escalate in Eastern Europe. Does that make companies like Raytheon and other defense stocks a hedge against a downturning market, or will the market itself just pull these stocks lower? I think they'll pull the stocks lower. Lower uh, the the safe haven plays like dollars and U.S. Treasuries. That's where everything's going to be because the shadow system that is out there, the shadow banking system, is so much larger than anything else. And like the Raytheon or whatever their market caps are, say all of the defense companies together have a trillion dollar market cap. Okay. Well, the, the shadow banking system is hundreds of trillions of dollars. So that, that is the dog and the, the weapons manufacturers are the tail. That's what I think. Makes perfect sense to me, man. My last question for you, just as far as broader markets go, beyond rate hikes, beyond Russia, Ukraine, is there any other catalyst or news that you're paying attention to that can send us higher or lower? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I'm, I've been watching Canada like everyone else has. I've been watching some stuff out of China with their real estate market just continuing to slowly crumble in front of everyone's eyes. And then, of course, this stuff going on in Ukraine. So I think those are the overriding issues right now. Uh, for Bitcoin, my stuff about Canada, and I did just release a podcast on my other podcast, uh, Bitcoin and Markets, about lessons learned from that. So I think that you know we, we learned what their tactics are going to be. They're going to blacklist addresses. They're going to freeze your third-party accounts. And so you know that gives us a blueprint for what to build better now.
right? And so that's what I'm I'm looking at is how Bitcoin can build solutions to what just kind of happened. And it didn't like hurt Bitcoin in any way. Bitcoin is still going 10, 10 minutes uh, a block, but uh, I think it kind of shook the confidence in Bitcoin a little bit. And we can see that in the charts. So I think this is a, a good place to get lessons learned and build stronger in the future. I'm curious, like, obviously we're, we at Bitcoin Magazine have been reporting a ton. Everyone should make a point of, especially if you're fans of FedWatch, check out Ansel's other uh, podcast where he dove much deeper into this. And I'm not going to have you give away all of your secrets here. Curious though, beyond Bitcoin and the effects on the stock market and just general market and the US financial decisions, is anything in Canada really going to impact the Fed? Is it going to change any of their decisions, do you think? No, I, I think Powell runs a pretty apolitical ship there. And that's not a very popular opinion in Bitcoin. It's not a very popular opinion in like the sound money community. That, uh, But I, I do think that the Fed under Powell is fairly apolitical and it's not really going to affect it all that much. I think maybe Gensler or, you know, we talked a lot about Gensler on today's show. I think that could affect maybe some stuff that he is looking at. Uh, because he's more on a regulatory side, but no, I don't think it's it affects the Fed all that much. Uh, I mean, my uh, one of my kind of thesis around what's going to play out over the next decade is the the U.S. is going to decouple from the rest of the world. We're gonna we're gonna go back towards the non-interventionism, and we're not going to be the world policeman anymore. For example, this Ukraine situation. I don't think there's any way there's going to be American boots on the ground over there. Uh, not even close. And so that's an example of how the U.S. is like, you guys need to figure it out yourself, fight your own wars. We're, we're uh, coming home. And th- you can see that somewhat with the Fed as well. There's some back and forth. We've reported on political type appointees with Sarah Bloom Raskin, Lael Brainerd. Uh, we've discussed that kind of stuff on the show. And Powell is really stiff arming those globalists over there from the Davos crowd and the ECB. So I see a break happening, not only on the geopolitical front, but on the central bank front as well. And yeah, so that's how I place Powell in this kind of overarching system. Does this happen as a result or will this result in in this scenario that you've just described of the US dollar dominance no longer being the world reserve currency? Well, I think it, it makes the US more like a free agent, right? And so as a free agent with a dominant currency, there's a lot more wiggle room with what you back your currency with. And so like we were talking to log scale there a few minutes ago, um, I think there is a chance that the US buys Bitcoin and the US backs their currency with Bitcoin. Uh, and it is probably the most likely country to do that in the entire world at this moment. It, because if you I mean, if you're going to threaten the U.S. dollar dominance, all the U.S. has to do is buy Bitcoin and and they still will be dominant. It's a pretty easy game theory. I can't wait for the Petro Bitcoin to be introduced to our public markets. (laughs) All right, man. Hey, I got to run. You guys take care and we'll see you next week. Absolutely. Ansel, thank you so much, man.